0: Oh.
1: The learning curve listeners this week Gerard is out but I have the pleasure of being with my friend friend of the show Mr. Darrell Bradford Darrell how you doing
2: thank you for having me as always it is a delightful to stand in for Gerard when he's on one of his uh, global jaunts
1: as yeah, usual we're when I get to stand globally in for jaunting globally yeah. jaunting well we appreciate you being here So, Darrell, you and I have decided today, I know I personally wasn't ready when we recorded last week's show, but we've decided that instead of our usual format, we're going to go ahead and talk about some pretty heavy topics. We've got a guest who's gonna talk about some pretty heavy topic, and you and I have been, we've had the people, the, the children, the community of Uvalde, Texas, top of mind. And let's start first by observing a moment of silence for those lost and those affected. And then we can wrap about it for a little bit. And that moment probably feels really long. It felt long to me, Darrell. I can only imagine what the moments have felt like for the families who have lost so much in these past couple weeks. And I just want to start off by saying I think for a lot of us who are parents, probably the second or third things that comes to mind after something like this happens, which it happens um, far too often in this country, is should I tell my kids and how will my kids handle this? And will I make my kids feel more unsafe than they already do? And so I want to share that a couple days after it happened, I was in the car with my 12-year-old daughter and I asked her, we haven't even been listening to the radio in the car for this reason. And I asked her if she knew what had happened, knowing that there, she was going to hear something at school, etc. And, you know, her response was both so mature and so frightening to me because she just looked right at me and she said, You know, Mom, kids of my generation just understand that this is the country we live in. And so I hate it, and I... I'm frightened by it, and it enrages me, but I also just get that this is what we have to deal with.
2: Yeah, I I can only imagine what it's like to have to be a parent and think this through. You know, I I was talking to a colleague of mine who was getting on a plane to go someplace, and she was saying, you know, my five-year-old is sort of noticing that all the hugs are a little bit tighter and a little bit longer and my five-year-old knows something is wrong. And obviously there is something incredibly ephemeral, which many parents outside of the horrific events of last week deal with all the time. They send the kids to school and they don't know whether or not they're gonna come home. You know, this is perhaps more widespread of fear and like awfulness that American families deal with, but I really wouldn't wish it on anybody. And it is truly, really terrible. I know like two things, if I can throw two things out there, and one of them is going to sound cynical. It's not meant to be, or clinical. It's not It's not meant to be that either, but you know, as a person who's sort of a creature of advocacy and policy change, you keep looking at these things and wondering why nothing happens. I can remember after the mass shooting in Parkland, the level of unrest, outrage, demonstration seemed like overwhelming and ubiquitous. And what like bump stocks got banned. I think bump stocks got banned. Mm -hmm. But in the end, it was just like, what about all of that didn't translate into more substantial policy change? And that's the kind of thing we sort of analyze all the time. It's really important. And I don't know if I have an answer for it, but I know somebody needs to have an answer for it. And then the second thing is just like, I, for one, certainly uh, behavior that we wouldn't sort of categorize as normal of all kinds has been on the rise and seemingly started to peak in 2020 when we as a nation made sort of a policy change that we weren't going to be around one another for two years in the interest of everyone else's safety. And full disclosure, I always say this, like I followed all the rules I spent two years in my house. The moment that people were talking about locking down schools, I was at the front of the line saying we should do it. But all of these policies have trade-offs, and I fear that we have unleashed something atavistic and angry in the American psyche that is presenting itself in ways that nobody really wants to acknowledge fully or act on in a fashion commensurate with the expansive nature of it all. And the adults in, you know, I'm in New York, like what's going on in the subways, just as, you know, for instance, is outrageous. It's almost like a bad movie, how out of control it is. And what has happened to what must be like thousands, if not more, of disaffected high school kids who had their schooling and lives disrupted over the same period was a policy choice and a trade-off. And we got to live with that in an incredibly serious way for them and for us and for everybody. And I just want somebody to be an adult about that and acknowledge it and start talking about it in a genuine and meaningful way.
1: Thank you for that. I think to your second point first about the unforeseen, impacts of the pandemic. I mean, I remember listening to a podcast with our now Surgeon General, actually pre-pandemic, when he was warning folks that loneliness is an epidemic in this country, Mm -hmm. right? That people are profoundly lonely in this country. And I think that that plays a lot into what you're saying and that the pandemic exacerbated that. And those of us who were locked down, you know, (laughs) if you're locked down alone, you might be lonely, but you might also be safe. you might also have the resources to keep yourself healthy and fed and a lot of people in this country many of them children were locked down in environments that absolutely weren't safe for them and weren't healthy for them or the or the whomever they were in in the home with but it also i think reveals these fractures obviously the huge fractures in our society which go much more to your first point which i'm still I think I said earlier, I've gone from like just sadness to a little bit of depression to just being so pissed off. But I feel like it's concerning because I go through that cycle every time and then life moves on and it probably shouldn't. But to get back to the idea of that the kids are not all right here, it's right that our schools are good schools and many of them of all types are good schools provide centers of community, provide resources for kids, socio-emotional, mental health, whatever that is, to some extent, probably not enough, but that not only did the pandemic heighten whatever dystopian feelings uh, kids are experiencing, blame it on whatever you want, blame it on social media, blame blame it on a million and one things, right? It probably doesn't even matter at this point. It's that too many of the adults who work with these kids in the system, don't have, I hate to talk about the resource question, I'm not usually one to say, oh, resources are gonna fix the problem, but just aren't, I can't imagine being, for example, a school counselor or even a teacher and being even emotionally equipped. I mean, I can barely deal with the emotional stuff of my own family half the time, let alone understanding what these kids, are going through, have been through, and how they're gonna continue to deal with that and take it out on one another. And we have in this country for a very long time, we fight, right, about the language of how to support kids. What should we call it SEL? No, you can't, I don't like that. What should we call at the end of the day, if we can't understand that people are not okay and kids can't learn if they don't feel safe, kids can't learn. And that goes to bullying or mass shootings. I mean they can't they can't learn, they can't be present. So I feel ya, and I, I'm i wondering though, as you know, I'm more of a policy creature and less of an advocacy creature than you are, is the larger conversation, the very important conversation around the change that needs to happen, change that have happened in places like Australia and Scotland after similar things have happened once, not 27 yeah. times in one year. But then there's also this conversation that I think you're pushing at around What do we do to support one another? What, how do we get at that?
2: Yeah, I I was talking to my boss about this and it's like, we're education policy experts for the most part, not gun policy experts. And I've been unwilling to step out of that lane because I take what I do seriously and I don't want to be sort of too flip about what you prescribe from an area in which you don't have a ton of expertise, but couple of things actually come to the surface and they are not merely sort of the glib take that kids are resilient that you found that valerie strauss put famously in the washington post when talking about school closings a year ago the the first thing is that i can't remember who said this but it's like very specifically the issue of school shootings there's a lot that happens to a child before they get to the school that we could intervene on. And I think it's sort of important to think of this series of opportunities that we have to intervene as something longer and more nuanced than just being there at the schoolhouse door or hardening that door. And that's the first thing. The second thing is actually a little bit counterintuitive. The move right now, I think, the societal move, which in many might be, you could look at it as practical, but you could also look at it as political, to consolidate all of the things needed to intervene for a kid who is stressed, unwell, whatever you want to call it, like under the mental health umbrella. The push to consolidate all that in school, to me, is wildly mistaken and hugely detrimental. And here are my reasons for asserting that. One is that you could say over the last like two years, there are like three and a half million teachers in America where there's like eight million of them. There's eight million of them if you count all of the churches, retirees, mentors and mentees, coaches, docents, and every other person who stepped into the lurch to help kids do something with their learning when the ritual of K-12 was disrupted as it was because of COVID. And those people are a part of the solution. And they need to be, we need to lean on that, right? The, The idea that we should recreate a paradigm that basically excluded all of them is absolutely the wrong way. And if that means like fund families, you know, or like give everybody a mental health voucher or like club sports are free for the next two years or or whatever it is, like all of those things that help people build connections that help them find who they are and like mediating institutions so they are less lonely so more people can see them and support them. We absolutely have to invest in that. That's the one thing. The second thing and it's sort of a little tongue-in-cheek but not really is that we just have to realize what schools are good at and what they aren't and the primary job that we've been asking america schools to do and some of them do it really well over the last like i don't know my lifetime has been to turn out literate numerate kids who could go on and be rational participants in our democracy so so, you know, so we're free from tyranny right and so people can live out our ideals and in 2019 one in five black fourth graders in this country tested at or above proficient on the nape and that was before the the unrest the crisis the friction of the last two years the idea that now we want schools to also be centers of all of this other expertise is ludicrous when you think about the fact that the core job we need done for many American kids has not been done well. I would just throw those two approaches out there as any approach for what I think is like, right now I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. I think to your point, you said it, the kids are not all right. That is expressing itself in lots of different ways. Like you can look at the New York times and high school principals are saying freshmen showing up acting like sixth graders. I was talking to Mark my boss and he was reading a thing where counselors are like kids are late or absent 88 to hundred yeah. times over the last year. Right. And nobody seems nobody seems to want to do anything about it. It's just all outrageous and it's a serious problem. We cannot imagine our way out of it. It's going to take serious people who want to get along and bring people together and do what's right for these kids.
1: Yeah, and I would, I agree, and I would add to that, that I think that the kids are not all right, and they're being let to slip through the cracks by not showing up to school or always being later, because so many of the adults aren't all right either, right? Yeah, that's true, that is true, that is true. It's just people feeling like, I, I can't, there's only so much I can do, there's only so much I can give. I know personally, I just had a conversation with a friend yesterday, I said, I have stopped, like I've always prided myself on being a person who reads the news and listens to the news and I do all the right things, right? I can't do it anymore because, you yeah. know, what? I don't find a moment of joy. There's still good stuff in this world, right? But it's a scary, depressing place if you spend your time listening to that. And I would agree with you, too. I think. I remember as far back as long ago in grad school, having this debate over, can schools be everything to everyone? And I agree with you, they cannot. I agree with you that if we can barely do the core function of making sure that all kids can read, then we're in a bad place. But we've also been so not innovative, right? For the most part. In how do you, like, there's this great school here in the Boston area called Codman Academy. It's co-located in a health center that- is like everything to that community that health center if you ask anybody in common square like what defines common square i guarantee you that many people are going to tell you about the health center and they're going to and every family that walks through that door they might not want it they might not think need it they get assigned somebody who's there to be a resource to the family whether it's You need somebody to talk to, you need to make sure that your blood pressure's in check, like all of the things. And therefore, they're there not just for the kids, they're there for the parents, they're there for the siblings. And that's thinking through, to your point, how you leverage civil society in the ways that we used to (laughs) at some point, right? We weren't all bowling alone, is really important. And I think our kids and our families are absolutely feeling that. And one of the big concerns I have is when you talk about, yeah, I would be for how do you get resource into the hands of people that need them? But people of means, if they're observant, might be able to look at their kids and purchase the therapist that's $500 a session and not covered by insurance and all of these things. So we know who's getting left out of the equation. We know who doesn't have the access that they need. And it's just, quite frankly, it's not a priority in this country And I think part of my anger stems from the fact that we can't seem to, gosh darn, figure out how to make it a priority. Even though when I think so many of us are feeling the same thing and walking around with a a bright smile on our face and doing the good work and doing our jobs in the inside, sometimes we're falling apart.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I just want to say again, it's like, while it is always a joy to do this show with you, I'm glad we had a chance to, acknowledge the tragedy of these 19 young people and their families and two educators that lost their lives because of it
1: yeah yeah thank you for that agree and maybe who knows you and i work in very similar circles maybe this will become more of a priority for the kind of work that we all do together and a new era of not just education reform but just supporting families and students so i'd like that Definitely. I would like that too, Alexi new project All right. coming up right after this Durrell, we're going to be speaking with Professor Paula Giddings and she is the Elizabeth A. Woodson Professor Emerita of Africana Studies at Smith College and the author of Ida, A Sword Among Lions Ida B. Wells and the Campaign Against Lynching so Learning Curve listeners please come back to us right after this I shall Learning Curve listeners, please help me welcome Paula Giddings. She is the Elizabeth A. Woodson 1922 Professor Emerita of Africana Studies at Smith College. Previously, Professor Giddings taught at Spelman College, where she was a United Negro Fund Distinguished Scholar, Douglas College, Rutgers University as the Lori Chair in Women's Studies, and Princeton and Duke Universities. She is the author of In Search of Sisterhood, Delta Sigma Theta and the Challenge of the Black Sorority Movement. When and Where I Enter, The Impact of Black Women on Race and Sex in America, and most recently, The Biography of Anti-Lynching Activist Ida B. Wells, Ida, A Sword Among Lions, Ida B. Wells, and the Campaign Against Lynching, which won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Biography and was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. She is a former book editor and journalist who has written extensively on international and national issues and has been published by The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Philadelphia Inquirer, Jeune Afrique in Paris, and The Nation and Sage, a scholarly journal on black women, among other publications. In 2017, Giddings was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Professor Paula Giddings, thank you so much for being with us today. And I am going to invite my friend Durrell to take it from here. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you for being with us, Professor Giddings. Because I am the king of understatement, I'll start with the obvious. You have an, you have an impressive career uh, in, uh,
0: in academia and, and, and journalism. And who, who was that woman you were talking about? Well, and humble, and humble. I I like that, too.
2: Um, You know, previously you said that, uh, and I think this is very important given the moment, you said you think America runs on rage and courage. Would you share with our listeners some of your own story Mm -hmm. and and how, like, historic events like the Civil Rights Movement and Freedom Rides shaped your life and thinking about the country?
0: Indeed. Well, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this, to talking to you. Well, I'm a child of the Civil Rights Movement. I grew up in the period of the Civil Rights Movement. And incidents and experiences that are so indelible and so defining, they sort of stay with you for most of your life. And this was true of the Freedom Rides that, for me, that took place in 1962. I was 15 years old at the time when when I saw the Freedom Rides on television. And if those of you who may not remember or who don't know very much about the Freedom Rides, these were uh, rides. This was the idea of civil rights workers to take buses from the North and go South to integrate waiting rooms, et cetera, in the South. And the rides started off, they were very dramatic, and there was some success. But there were some of the rides, and I remember when one of the buses hit Anniston, Alabama, and in other places, there was such violence. The mm-hmm. Buses were stopped. People were, were taken off the buses. Some of the buses were bombed. People were beaten. It was the first time I saw such rage. That's where the idea of that rage came from. But instead of being deterred, especially the young people who were involved in the rides, said they just would not stop. They were going to continue to ride. They were not going to be defeated. And that was the courage that I saw. And then I started thinking about as a teenager, I mean, what is this thing called race that brings out both that rage and that courage? And I think that's really been my defining mission for my writing, my professional life in particular, of always searching for that answer.
2: That's wonderfully said, and probably a pretty good segue to my next question. Your biography, I've spent some time learning about Ida B. Wells now, but Ida B. Wells, a sword among lions. Ida B. Wells in the campaign against lynching is your definitive volume on the often underappreciated wildly unsung figure of Ida B. Wells in American history. Could you give us a brief overview of her life and why she's so vitally important as just like a person, as a figure for school children and for the general public to just know significantly more about than they do?
0: Yes, it's very dangerous to ask biographers, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) But but, but I, I will do my best. Ida B. Wells, what drew me to her as a figure was her courage. If you want to talk about courage in the face of rage, because she started the first anti-lynching campaign Mm -hmm. in the country in 1892 from the South, from Memphis, Tennessee. And she had such courage, not just physical courage, girl, but also a kind of social courage in which she had a conviction about stopping lynching and understanding the real reasons for it. And she followed that conviction, even though it went against so many of the mores and rules of the society of that time. You know, we're talking about a Victorian period yeah. when no one talked about certain kinds of things, when women didn't write about politics or speak out loud about things, or certainly who didn't, as she did became an investigative journalist traveling alone often in the South investigating lynchings. This is in the 1890s, yeah, I, I the just, early I just, 20th century.
2: I was stunned by this, not just the, to your point about the ability to sort of bring this career as an investigative journalist into existence, but the fact that she did this sort of alone in this in the face of sort of all this the threat of physical violence, enormous physical violence, right? And obviously, being a Black woman in the South trying to report on this, obviously racial violence is right there too. It was really astounding.
0: Yes, indeed. So I think it's wonderful for students to have models of people who do this, (laughs) who have that kind of courage and that courage of conviction which was so important. A quick overview. She was born uh, into, I, I like to say, on the cusp of slavery in 1862. She grows up in the Reconstruction period, which is a great period, of course, hope and change, <laughs> <laughs> to borrow a phrase. She comes of age, though, in the post-Reconstruction period, which has been characterized by a number of historians as the nadir in our history, because of the disenfranchisement of African Americans, of the increase in violence, and certainly what stands out is the increase of lynching of Black men and women. The rationale for this lynching, because remember, you had to have a rationale because this is extrajudicial, right? Mm-hmm. This is outside of the law. So there had to be a rationale that justified such an act. And that thing was this accusation that Black men in particular were raping white women. This had sort of broken out in this period of time. And unfortunately, it was affirmed by much else that was going on in the society, including the sciences. This is a period of the emergence of the social sciences. And even those scholars in the Ivy League schools talked about the fact that Blacks were regressing because they were no longer under the tutelage of slavery and that they'd become vicious and more and more primitive and therefore lascivious and criminally prone. So this was the justification and lynchings became, they became even not only more numerous in the late 19th century, but also more vicious. In 1892, when Wells is 30 years old, a friend of hers in Memphis, Tennessee, by the name of Thomas Moss, is lynched. And to shorthand it, the only crime Thomas Moss ever committed was to outcompete uh, a white proprietor. Thomas Moss was a co owner of a grocery store that competed with that of a, of a white owner. And yeah. a number of incidents that happen, right? And he is lynched because of that. And Wells begins to understand that lynching doesn't have anything to do really with rape, but really an effort to keep blacks down in a period where there's industrialization, where there's a great deal of economic competition and where blacks were doing so well, they really were emerging in these communities and beginning to thrive. And so when she understands that lynching is really at the heart of, because uh, lynching is within the context of all these terrible stereotypes, Around black people, that she decides that lynching is the thing that, when she unpacks it and makes people understand what's really going on, she will help to liberate sort of ideas around black people and therefore, you know, facilitate equality.
2: See, uh, later,
0: very, very quickly, she is exiled from Memphis for anti lynching editorials. Her office is destroyed. She goes to New York for a while and finally settles and marries and continues her reforms in Chicago. And we can, uh, if you want to ask me about that, I can tell you more about that. She's just the epitome of a great reformer around women's suffrage, around creating a settlement house for blacks. And there in Chicago, she's a co-founder of the NAACP.
2: Wow. Yeah, in my research, her economic insights on lynching were also incredibly powerful.
0: Absolutely,
2: yeah. Last question from me. So Ida B. Wells was born into slavery, as she as sort of uh, noted earlier, taught herself to read, attended a historically, black college, and was also widely read, like uh, Shakespeare, Dickens, you know, Bronte. Would you talk about how this kind of like liberal arts learning helped define her life and her writings and her ideals, as well as like what we can draw from who she became from how she became educated.
0: Yes, she is a great example of the power of reading. She read everything that she could get her hands on, and lots of women's literature, as you've just noted. And when you think about what she was reading, many of those characters in Alcott and Bronte, a number of them were young girls who just had a lot of challenges in their lives and had some tragedies in their lives, but they overcame it. A number of them are orphans, like she Ida was orphaned at the age of 16 because of the yellow fever uh, epidemic. Some of these girls, these characters were orphaned as well, but they were empowered. I was particularly struck with a phrase from Little Joe in Little Women, when little Joe is determined to leave the family and go to the city to become a great writer, and write things that people will always remember and help to change the world, that was yeah. her aspiration. And in terms of even Shakespeare, Ida loved the theater. And she even played Lady Macbeth once in a theater. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, from from what I saw, the comments that she should probably, you know, kept her day job. (laughs) uh, But if you think about Lady Macbeth, which asks the gods, "Unsex me so I can do what I have to do," you can see where this could be also an affirmation and an inspiration for her. So she was also a lonely. Young woman, and she had great joy in the world that literature and of learning also helped her to learn how to write. you a great storyteller, and she became one as well.
1: Hello, Professor Giddings. Thank you so much for Hi. being with us today. <laughs> I have to say, I'm staring. I always have a copy of Little Women. <laughs> I love that that ended this conversation. <laughs> there you always go. on the coffee table here in my office because it's one of the. Three books. <laughs> great. I could go back to it again and again and again. Now, I'm, I'm compelled to follow up on a question I think is related to one that Darrell asked. And I want to preface this by saying that I guess about three years ago, pre-pandemic, I had the great fortune, the organization that I work for took every single employee on a retreat to the Legacy Museum. And um, of the many, many ways in which that place left an impression, I mean, one of the biggest was that I'm a child of the 1980s. I thought I went to pretty good schools, Mm -hmm. and boy, oh boy, being there made me realize I learned nothing about the history of this country. It was a rude awakening for me Mm -hmm. at many, many levels about my school education and my Mm self-education. And so... The question I want to put to you is, when we think about folks like Ida B. Wells and her works, including not only her public writings, but her diaries and her experiences witnessing the events that shaped our history in such horrific ways, how can reading these things help today's students understand the history of race and lynching in America?
0: Ida Wells understood that you have to not just write history— but write a narrative, a story about what was really going on. And that was one of the powers she had as a journalist. One of the things she made sure to do, because she also considered herself, she was very upset, for example, that a number of victims and lynched, you know, that they were, that their names were never known, or that they don't want to sound too gruesome, but. Often families were afraid to even retrieve the bodies because they would be penalized and punished. And so she always made sure when she did her investigative reporting to talk about who those people were and to name names and to give them a place in history. And I think that's a lesson of the humanity of what she was doing, not just an ideological or a political mission, which of course there was those two, but a humane mission as well. I'll tell you a very quick story. I was on a panel, and it was a panel on Ida B. Wells with a number of others who had worked on her. And I was on the dais, and a woman comes up to me before the panel starts and takes my hand. And she says, we learned what happened to my great-grandfather by reading your book. Wow. I had quoted Ida Wells writing about some men who had been lynched outside of Memphis, Tennessee. And this woman's great-grandfather was one of those. that She said he had disappeared. No one knew what had happened to him. Wow. So, right flabbergasted, right? But very, very moved. And I said, well, that's why I'm doing this, right? I mean, so that's very important. Her diary is very interesting. And what I got out of it was, well, first of all, you read the diary. It is, as far as we know, the only kind of eyewitness to the community of a place like Memphis of Memphis in the 1880s in, in this period. And you read about all the daily life and what people were doing and even what people were wearing. Ida Wells was a clothes horse who spent too much money for clothes, she, <laughs> oh, which, which I loved. I mean, she's very flawed. Yeah. I love this in and, and other ways as well. Uh, so you get that sense. But you know, the greatest gift that diary was for me was that because of her experiences of being orphaned and of, so sort of being taken advantage of in the community, which is a whole nother story. She was a very angry person, but she was also self-reflective. And you see all this in the diary. And she understood that if she didn't get a hold of her anger, that it would destroy her. And so you can see in this diary her efforts to reform herself first. <laughs> and it's excruciating, but she does it. There are psychological profiles. Which show that lots of leaders are really people who are, because leaders, when you think about, by definition, you know, are assertive and aggressive, and and they, at the root of aggression is anger. But the best leaders are those who are able to transform the energy, that negative energy, into positive energy, and in her case, into reform. You can actually trace this in the
1: diary. It's a fascinating observation, I have to say. We've previously had a guest on this show who made the point that some of the most, whether they're dynamic or popular or greatest, depending on how you find that, leaders have been actors, (laughs) 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 angry actors, but this notion of how do you transform that, I'll also take with me from what you said, this idea that she had this compulsion to help name victims which right. I personally took away from my trip to the Legacy Museum, but I think is very relevant yes. to some of the challenges Darrell and I were discussing at the top of this hour before we brought you on about challenges we're facing in this country. I would love to ask you one last question, and you began mm-hmm. to talk about this, and we put a little bit of a pin in it, and I'd like to come back. So can you talk more about Wells's work as a progressive reformer, a black progressive reformer and thinker, During this era, her gender alone, right? But an era of overt racism, and then you couple with that industrialization and corrupt urban political machines, right? So tell us a little bit more about that, and what lessons would you have us draw? A great example. Let me explain it through an example. Ida
0: Wells actually founded the first Black women's suffrage organization in Chicago in 1912. 1913. And the reasons why she did, of course, we know that there was lots of momentum towards suffrage and towards the 19th Amendment at that period. But there was also a passage of legislation in Illinois where women could vote in municipal elections as a result of the Progressive Party winning A number of offices in Illinois. So she was preparing black women to mobilize for this. And once that legislation was passed, this is exactly what she did was to mobilize black women. Why? Yes, for the vote, but not just for the vote's sake. There was the black community and particularly the second ward, which is where all Blacks coming from the migration South were shoveled, (laughs) right, Mm -hmm. was actually run by the Chicago political machine that was corrupt, paid people off so they could maintain uh, their power. But at the same time, the second ward in that area was deteriorating because no one was really paying attention to it and the quality of life of Blacks was declining. So her idea was because the men couldn't be trusted so much. <laughs> let's mobilize women, and let's mobilize behind an independent candidate. So she challenges the, she, so, so, and she was very, very successful as a result. Oh, also, I, let me not forget that there was no Black representation, even if, if with, a great, with a majority Black population in that area. So it, because of her, and so I a long story to unwind, it. because of her and because of what women were able to do, the machine had to at least give, had to have emerge a Black candidate to be uh, an alderman, which is like a city councilman. Yeah. And Wells and her people got behind him, Oscar De Priest who wins the election and becomes the first black Alderman in Chicago. And later he will become the first black to be in the house of representatives since reconstruction. What she did was she developed more than just one person. She developed a constituency for progressive reform. And ever since after her mobilization, people always had to come to the women to make sure to get their support. And they made the difference in the number of elections. I'm listening to
2: all this, and I'm just saying, what have I done with my life?
1: <laughs> you know, I'm listening to this, and I'm saying, because the men can't be trusted, let's mobilize the women. <laughs> <laughs> there are many lessons. There are many lessons. In there, many- there are so many sound points that we will both take away from. This podcast. <laughs> Professor Kiddings, we've been talking so much about the writings of Ida B. Weld, but we would love to hear some of your own. So would you read us a passage from your book? I will. This is from
0: a chapter called The Truth About Lynching, what Ida Wells wrote after being exiled from Memphis. She was invited to write for an important Black newspaper in New York, the New York age. The column was called The Truth About Lynching, which really becomes the first study of lynching. So I tried to characterize the impact and the meaning of that work and as it related to her. And this is also back to the uh, particularly social courage as well as physical courage. In order for Wells to follow the logic of lynching and to its ultimate conclusion, she herself had had to take a deliberate flight from the radical innocence that was at the heart of Victorian thought. Quote, it is with no pleasure I have dipped my hands in the corruption here exposed, she told her readers. Either replaced the language of gentility with reality and dispensed with the, quote, false delicacy of the, quote, unspeakable crime, which was lynching. She was one of the few women reformers who actually used the word rape and had learned to do so without apology. Wells understood the radical implications of her message. And was prepared to endure the consequences, even if, as she said, "quote the heavens might fall." But she had made up her mind that her campaign, wherever it took her, was her calling, and that she would see it through. Ida's crusade to tell the truth about lynching gave her the means to reorder the world, and her and the races' place within it. Once defamed herself, now she could expose the lies that sullied the races name somebody must show that the afro-american race is more sinned against than sinning wrote wells who had found the vehicle of her destiny and it seems to have fallen on me to do
1: so end quote Amazing. It seems to have fallen on me and if even if the heavens may fall is quite a mantle yes. to bear. But and and the heavens did
0: fall, let me tell you. She was like, Oh, they talk about I guess this is sort of sexist, but she was talking about the little old lady driving down the middle of the street and <laughs> and everybody's everything crashes around you know she indeed did that
1: (laughs) wow amazing well Professor Paula Giddings thank you so much for your time today this has been truly enlightening
0: it really was well thank you
1: thank you for your wonderful questions as well please take care (laughs) I know our listeners will enjoy (laughs) thank you so much he First of all, thank you to Darrell for being with us today and for the great conversation, sad conversation, frustrating conversation, but I think well worth having Darrell. And we always appreciate you coming on the show and being such a good friend of the show. Next week, we're going to be speaking with Chris Sinicola and David Ferrara, and they are co-editors of Pioneer's new book, Hands-On Achievement, Massachusetts' National Model of Vocational Technical Schools. Darrell, anything you want to share before we sign off?
2: No, I can think of lots of places I'd like to be virtually, but none of them better than being with you and the Pioneer Institute and the Learning Curve podcast. So thank you.
1: <laughs> we love it. I've got a big smile on my face right now. I needed that. Thank you. All right. We'll talk soon. All right, cool. Bye-bye.